0: What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Wong. I'm showing today. I just got off tour. I just did an incredible U.S. West Coast tour. Huge thanks to anybody who came out. It was an incredible tour. So many fun shows. So many highlights. Can't wait. I've been actually listening back to a bunch of the shows, mixing some of them down and checking through the video. I recorded every one of them. Going to be putting some stuff out there. And extreme stokage... For anybody who's coming to the East Coast tour in February, March, we got Victor Wooten and Truesdale out with us. It's going to be insane, huge 13-piece band. It's, it's going to be wild. It's going to be great. So I hope to see you there. And we just announced, same band, my full band, is going to Europe in October. So check it out. Check out the tour dates. You know, it's honestly it's kind of hard for artists to let people know that they're touring right now it's like a weird era of social media where like the algorithms are shifting and it's like ah you just got to try a little harder to let people know that you're doing things or that you put things out so that's why you hear all of us talking about stuff so much now because honestly it's just kind of hard to let people know what's happening some of my favorite bands have been touring i live in Minneapolis, and. I didn't find out until yesterday that the 1975 is going to be here next week. I was like, wait, what? They're on tour? How did I not know? I totally missed when, so I also, I, yeah, I was in Nashville and I didn't even know that Phoenix was playing at the Ryman's. Phoenix is one of my favorite bands. How did I not know that they were playing? I don't know. It's just kind of like hard sometimes to know what's going on because there's so much going on. But anyways, I'm letting you know that I've got stuff going on and it's fun. Today on the show, we have an incredible singer, songwriter, guitarist, KT Tunstall. I was familiar with KT's radio stuff, like all the radio songs and everything. And then when we were thinking about, oh, who should we get for this season to interview? I was doing some research on her and just like, oh yeah, what's up with that that acoustic guitar and looping thing? I did a bunch of research, watched a bunch of videos, read a bunch of things about her. I was like, dang. She's dope, there's a lot happening there. And I was really excited to dive into this conversation and she's just absolutely wonderful, incredible talent. I'm super excited that I got to interview her and I'm excited for you to listen to it because she's got a lot of great wisdom and just a lot of, I don't know, she's got a lot of perspective in a different way than a lot of the other interviewees have had and it's really cool that's why i love doing this podcast i get to pick people's brains about different parts of the industry parts of artistry and creativity and kt is unique and incredible so without further ado let's hit it kt tunstall hey you guys know about distro Kid yet If you are an artist, musician, somebody who's trying to get your music on Spotify, Apple Music, all of those things, DistroKid is a digital distributor that can get your music on all of those platforms. It's the easiest, fastest way to do so with accounts even just starting at $19.99 a year per artist. So for me, I have several albums out. I just pay one amount for the year. For all the Corey Wong albums, I just pay one amount and DistroKid takes 0% royalty hundred percent of the royalties come straight to me or you use their teams feature where you can dedicate a certain percentage to one member of your band a certain percentage to the other or one of your collaborators i do this sort of thing it works amazing distrokid is who i use for my albums and it has worked great for me the stuff gets up there fast they have a smart isrc thing i don't have to worry about coming up with my own codes registering a lot of the stuff they just have that. And they also have these really cool design tools. If you are not very design savvy, they'll help you come up with assets for social media and other things to help promote your album. And if you wanna use them, you can use my VIP code. Just go distrokid.com slash VIP slash Corey Wong, and you get 30% off. How about that? Check them out, distrokid. All right, let's hit this episode. KT, thank you so much for joining us. This is such a treat to have you on the show. It is such a pleasure to be talking to you, Corey. Thank you for having me. Of course. Where are you joining us from right now?
1: I am in up on a, on a ridge in Topanga Canyon in LA.
0: Nice. Literally on the ridge, or are you in a house? It looks like you're you're in a yeah,
1: house. Yeah, I'm looking. I'm very. I'm in my studio, and I'm very lucky because I'm on the side of a like terrifyingly vertiginous hillside and I can see like deer out the window. It's, it's we can pretend we're not in a city. It's incredible. I love that. I love that. Yeah, it's very lucky.
0: That's great. Well, I have a lot of questions about your guitar playing, your gear, your music, your songwriting, just how you've approached your artistry and your career over the last however many years. So I want to dive- Dec- Decades. <laughs> Well, I want to dive right into your guitar looping because this is Mm. the thing that I'm more curious about than ever right now. Because you do a really cool looping thing and you are one of the first people that I saw really utilize looping to an extent that it was more than just like the average, oh, I'm just going to play some chords and then whatever Mm. over it. You were doing a lot of really cool things, building entire tracks over it, which now, of course, we see so many people doing, and I feel like you've inspired a lot of people and kind of helped push that entire technology along. So I'm curious, was that out of necessity? Was that part of the vision from the start for you, the whole looping thing? It was not at all like part of the
1: vision, but what happened was I'd spent like my whole twenties trying to get somewhere as a musician and not really having that much luck, partly because my mentor up in Scotland was a musician called King Creosote, and he was just fiercely independent. So I was like for years, not wanting to sign a record deal. I just wanted to do it and not sign to the man and, you know, which is extremely hard to do. Sure. Um so I just spent a decade playing these like horrendously confessional like cod therapy session open mic nights. Yeah. And I never ever felt like I fit in. It just I didn't mm. I felt like I should be down the street at the at the kind of smelly bar with the bands rather than doing the kind of more sensitive stuff that I was sure. in the lineup for. And I made I got my deal in the end, went down to London, got my deal. And then after making the record, I pretty much just made the record with a drummer, and then me and Steve Osborne, the producer, kind of shared bass duties, got a bassist, then got a few musicians in, but it wasn't like full band. And and Steve Osborne, the producer, really worked out my my kind of secret mojo, which is that my rhythm section in my band is drums and my guitar. Yeah. And the bass is actually way freer to be more melodic because me and the drums are actually holding down the song. Yeah. And, and he was like, the drums have to follow your right hand, the way that you strum, like instead of playing a straight beat, it needs to be syncopated and really following your rhythm. Otherwise, it just flattens it out becomes boring. So after making the record, I was just like, I cannot do like Smelly Cat by Phoebe anymore. I'm, <laughs> oh, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> and i need to have this element it was like the rhythm at that by that point felt as important as lyrics and melody yeah to what i was doing and um and i also play like a lot of single string stuff when i'm playing yeah. i kind of use the guitar as a bass a little bit and so i was actually in a i was i was a, a lead vocalist and top line writer for a jewish drum and bass band
0: how about that
1: they were called Oiva Voy. Okay. And they were on the label that I eventually signed to, but my label boss had said, why don't you just come and join this band? They need a top line writer. They need a lead vocalist for a while on tour and get to know us. And I did. And it was just the most amazing experience, like seven kick-ass klezmer musicians with like a great drummer. And the, the sound guy, Mosh, had an an Akai Headrush loop pedal in his backpack. And after rehearsal one day, I was talking to him saying, I'm so bored of just playing with guitar. And he got this thing out. He said, let's try this. And we just plugged it in and it sounded terrible. And then we kind of worked (laughs) out that we'd have to EQ the guitar. So I'd seen seen singer-songwriter Jim White do some looping. I actually found out from a fan last night at a gig that John Martin used to do looping. Like in the 80s, which I had, I, I'm a huge fan of that album Solidaire. I had no idea he was into looping. Um, I'd seen people do it on guitar. And then I saw this really great guy called Son of Dave, a Canadian artist, doing beatboxing and singing and playing harmonica. But I hadn't seen anyone do both at the same time. Yeah. And the thing. That was definitely a, a huge kind of eureka moment was surely if I just smash my guitar with my fist, it's gonna sound like a kick drum. And it a hundred percent did not. It sounded like, it sounded like me like just punching my cupboard that's got like my food in it. It was just awful. And then so we put a little four, four-track mixer desk at my feet. And yeah. also the loop pedal, which I still use the same one. I use Mark II now. So I looped nice. up in the world. Okay. All right. Um but it's only got one input. So yeah. I was then mixing whatever I wanted to put in the loop pedal at my feet, doing the EQs for the guitar channel so that it sounded like a drum kit. And then I was like totally off to the races because I was like this is awesome. I I've got a drummer.
0: That's great. And I have seen this. I saw your rig run down. Oh, that was I-
1: great. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so I saw the the Headrush pedal, and you literally have a, for those that haven't seen it, you should go check out her rig rundown. But there is an actual just like four channel mixer yeah, that you'd expect it's a to see in a four channel Mackie yeah.
1: mixer, like at my feet. I feel like Prince, like doing my sound <laughs> from the mic. You know, it's great, and it, and it's really I'm I'm such a believer in making what I'm doing sound really good at source. I don't hmm. want to be depending on a sound guy or a monitor engineer or anyone else to be, to be do, or, or effects yeah. for stuff to sound good. So it gives me that level of control where I can actually just make it sound great if I'm playing in a coffee shop with a little PA, you know? You just, it's yeah. plug, it, plug in and ready to go. It looks like a bowl of spaghetti, but it's actually <laughs> not that complicated.
0: Well, for anybody who's really toured a lot with a pedal board, it just kind of, I don't know, at least my experiences, no matter how nice I try to make my pedal board, oh, by the end yeah. of the tour, several flights, and who knows how many buses and hotels, it's just like, I don't know, it's just a complete mess now.
1: <laughs> I know, I have this idea in my head of, like, the perfect pedal board, and it would be like, you know, the keyboard from the Star Wars bar. It would be like <laughs> this kind of semi-circular <laughs> thing with, like, amazing pedals that glow in the dark and... <laughs> one day one day gory
0: <laughs> one day maybe that'll be it but you're gonna fly with it and then somebody's gonna tear off the pedals Someone's to look at it up. and then exactly yeah you know, you know.
1: but no yeah. so it was it was just um it was a it was an extremely formative transformative uh, you know key moment in my own uh evolution as a musician yeah to to kind of discover the relationship with it and i sort of didn't think that much about it. I was going at that point around playing like coffee shops and, and a few bars and I had a little diagram in my journal of how to plug it in and if I lost that I was like screwed. <laughs> and, I, and so I would just plug it in and, and people would be like, yeah, that's cool. But no one was like losing their mind. And then I got, and then Nas the rapper pulls out of this this amazing music show in the UK called Later with Jules Holland and 24 hours, yeah, I get twenty. I mean, not the most obvious choice to replace Naz, you know, <laughs> unknown folk singer songwriter from Scotland, and uh, and I and I went on with the loop pedal, and it was really funny because YouTube had just been born at that point. Yeah. It was like two thousand, late two thousand and four. I don't know when YouTube actually started, but it was certainly just gaining popularity at that time. And really, this this trajectory i went on probably wouldn't have happened if people couldn't see what i was doing
0: yeah it was a huge part of it interesting so tell me where you were out in your career at that time you you said you were virtually unknown singer songwriter
1: yeah record record was not out nothing released totally unknown never been on television no one knew who i was so and why got, did you get picked the the scouts that every every week Jules holland puts on a, a new act Oh, cool. Who's not who's not known. And they might or they might just be signed and new, but sure. I was a lucky one where I was like literally not even sort of announced at that point. And the funny part was that Black Horse and the Cherry Tree, first of all, I wrote that song basically as a way to learn how to use the loop pedal. Really? So I have no idea what the lyrics mean. <laughs> it's like <laughs> completely weird, automatic lyric writing that I was just coming up with while i was learning how to use the loop pedal it's basically about me being you know it was like the robert johnson devil at the crossroads i've got to sign a record deal <laughs> that's what that song's about and uh and kind of no no you're not the one for me ironically was sort of the label <laughs> that wow. ended up that ended up being you know the the greatest champion of me doing what i did and so my label boss had heard that song, wanted me to play it for the scouts. The album was quote unquote finished and Other Side of the World was the first single. And we get this call to do the show and my label boss is like, play play that woohoo thing. And I'm like, <laughs> w- I was like, why would I play that? It's not on the record. He was like, don't worry about it. Just play the horsey song. And I did. And I thought, this is crazy. Why am I not playing the single from the record? We don't even have this song recorded. And it just went bananas, and so we then rush released the record. And the first ten thousand copies of "Eye to the Telescope" has the audio from Jules Holland.
0: You serious?
1: As, yeah, as the track because we didn't have a recording of it. Wow! So it's the li- it's the live audio from loop audio from the from the show.
0: It's so cool. So did people start giving it up for you finally? Then after that, once they saw uh, you, it just
1: it just went wild. Like it. So if anyone isn't familiar with the show, Jules Holland was in Squeeze, great band, and um, he's been doing this show for 25 years now, and he'll have extremely famous, well-established stars alongside indie bands, alongside people like me at the time, completely unknown. So I get this last minute call, I go in the studio, I am on the show with Anita Baker, Jackson Brown and The Cure. Wow. Wow. And you're in a circle and you do a song each. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it's recorded as live. Yeah. So I'm just standing there like watching The Cure, watching Anita Baker, watching Jackson Brown. And then it's my turn and they're all watching me. And you're just by yourself. I'm just totally by myself with the loop
0: pedal. That's so dope. I'm so
1: glad, I'm so glad I didn't have longer to get like worked up about it.
0: That's so great.
1: Yeah. It was just one of those moments, you know, and I, I think about it a lot. It all, you know, we always talk about this when we talk about my career because it was just such an unbelievable turning point. And I, I, I often think like lots of people got chances to go on that show and that didn't happen. You know, did yeah. there wasn't an explosion like that? And it's just such an alignment of 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 puzzle pieces. Not least that I didn't completely fuck up. Sure, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I could have yeah. just got it completely wrong and. Lo- or yeah. just not played that great or not sung that great. or, And I think just because I d- thankfully didn't have a lot of time to get worked up. And also, I'm just way, thank thank the gods of, you know, nerves. I just, I'm much better under pressure yeah. than I am. I'm, I, I definitely need a deadline to, to perform. So I, I actually kind of have always, even as a kid, kind of, risen much higher to the challenge if it's put in front of me rather than just day to day doing something, you know?
0: What do you think are the things about that performance that were so magnetic that caused just that meteor strike to happen?
1: Yeah. It's interesting. First of all, I came out of the back of a, a real heavy period of indie bands, of indie mm-hmm. boy bands. It was Kings of Leon, Killers, Uh, I guess the Strokes were around at that time as well. Franz Ferdinand came out about the same time as me. I'd had a really hard time getting a record deal because Nora Jones had had this enormous success in the early 2000s. And she absolutely opened the door for a lot of us because record companies had no interest in girls with instruments and I remember going and trying to get record deals, and I was playing songs in you know horrible sterile offices for people, and they would always say, "Oh, you're great, but we've got a girl who plays something really." And I was like, "What? Like, how many guys have you got who play something? Like, yeah, what, what are you talking about?" And, but still, there was there was not an awful lot of this type of singer songwriter yet. There was a sure. there was about to be an explosion of it, of course, um, yeah. And I think the second thing was not only had uh, had very few people had seen looping, I think, on mm. a you know, it was really only kind of musos yeah. who who knew about it. Um, certainly no one had seen it performed on a on a national kind of stage like that. Yeah. And they certainly hadn't seen a girl do it. I think it was, you know, I've, I've always been, I'm very much the Chrissy Hines school of musician first, you know, sex comes later, whatever. I, I, it's, it's never been a huge deal to me, being a female in the music industry. But I do think that that was sort of like, oh my God, you know, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a chick using a pedal board. <laughs> sure. And, um, and I think too, probably my guitar playing style Was um was it was I'm very scrappy player. I love like I think Wake Up Little Susie by the Everly Brothers is like the masterclass acoustic guitar lesson because it's just about precision whilst playing quite wild. Yeah, and um I guess maybe you know people when they see a girl with a guitar they just expect it's gonna be it's gonna be extremely tender and someone's broken up with her. You know. Mm. And, uh, and it was just not that. So I think it was maybe just on a few levels surprising to
0: people. Do you feel like you were as self-aware back then as you are now?
1: God, no, I was like, a, I was like, a, I mean, I was 29. Thank God I looked young, but I, I was nearly 30 at that point. But I, I mean, I was a 17 year old inside. I'd, I'd, sure. all I'd been doing for, for, over 10 years was trying to get there as a musician and I hadn't grown up at all. So no, I was, I was extremely unselfaware back then. I think just, just one of the, I was just one of the dudes wanting to play in a band, do gigs, get in a van, travel around, have a laugh.
0: Sure. And I think in your explanation, Might I add that you're maybe discrediting the fact that it's also a very great song proven by the radio? And whether it (laughs) be just to you, just kind of, oh, feeling like throwaway lyrics, there's something about it that obviously connects both on the, in your delivery of it, your writing, and just the overall. Thing. Like there, there's something beyond yeah, no, just I, things aligning. That, that yes,
1: you know. sure, no, and I, I thank you. I I do take that on board, and I appreciate <laughs> it because it's um it's certainly you know been it's the holy grail that you get off a plane somewhere where you've never been and you play for people and they sing the words back to you. It's just yeah. the most wonderful thing to happen to a musician. I think so. Um, yeah. It. Uh, and, and as and I uh, and also not to discredit automatic writing because it's definitely coming from somewhere very personal and so totally. as long as it's coming from an honest place, you know. I think Neil Young said that you don't tamper with what comes out first, you know.
0: Yeah, I love working off of instincts, and then yeah, if you need to hone something later, like if if it doesn't yeah. work, fine. But I don't usually
1: it's... like doing that. I mm. I I usually do
0: like to trust. There's, a, yeah.
1: I like to think that there's a reason why it's come out. In mm, that form, yeah.
0: you know, was well, suddenly I see you on the same album, it
1: sure was. And that was another completely bizarre experience of writing a song where uh, the record was mostly done, and then the label said that awful thing of like, we might need more hits, and you're like, Ugh. yeah, <laughs> I don't know what that means. I just write songs, yeah. And um, I was in my little crappy basement apartment in London. And it was about two in the morning. I was such a, I was completely nocturnal at that time. I just like was awake all night. And I was staring at Horses by Patty Smith at like two in the morning. And I just, I've seen the album cover before, that amazing Robert Maplethorpe portrait of her black and white. And uh, it just like kicked me in the gut. It was like, she just looked like she was just, there was no trying there was no effort she was just being and it was a it was a very very cl- memorable moment of clarity for me where i was like oh my god i've just been trying so hard for so long and i just want to be i just want to be doing i don't want to be trying and trying to convince other people anymore um and and that whole song is about that photograph wow yeah and I wrote it in like half an hour. It was like done and dusted. It just came out like fully formed. It was really amazing.
0: We might be catching on to a pattern here. <laughs> yeah, just was, let just, your instincts just, yeah, run just wild.
1: <laughs> don't think about it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that was a song that after the label said, hey, you got to write some more hits, you went and wrote that?
1: They were definitely, definitely felt like they weren't, um, we weren't done. And it's so annoying because, you know, this is then anyone working, uh, any A&R from a label listening to this is going, see, it works when yeah, we tell for, the artist yeah. that we need a hit. And just FYI, it usually doesn't. Um, Correct. But the funny thing was, the funny thing was that I really c- remain completely convinced that no one knew that was a big hit. Like everyone, my, the, the producer, my manager, the label, they were like, oh yeah, this is great. This is this is really catchy. This is definitely on the record. No one was like, this is a smash hit song.
0: Really? I heard that yeah. the first time I heard that sound. I was like, dang it. This is <laughs> this. I I remember that. You know, there's a lot of songs that you think it's like, I'm gonna remember this one for a long time. For whatever reason, that one, yeah. that one just has a special. I mean, yeah, that one to me, I would have led off with that. Well,
1: if anyone if anyone clocked that that was a global smash hit, they kept it to themselves cuz no one said anything about that. And it was just it was on the record and it was that it wasn't it was the third single or third single, I think.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I mean, that's that's amazing. It was a very cool
1: experience of uh I think actually, you know, because that song's completely changed my life, like straight up. My yeah. life is very different than it would have been if I hadn't written that song. I think, and the fact that it came out in such a sort of mysterious way, and, and in you know, it got laid like an egg, <laughs> it was just so strange. Um, it really taught me to very deeply respect the mystery of songwriting because hmm. you know, you get asked about writing a lot, and it's just like, oh, yeah, personal experience, you know, whatever stories, like that. But I just think you don't really know how you write a song, where it comes from, or if you're trying to explain it to someone, there's something about it that you cannot explain how that happens. And I think it really embedded a very deep respect for not being in control of that creative part of myself and just be grateful for it. And it's going to come when it comes. So I've never kind of got uptight about writer's block. I'm just like, well, if I've got writer's block, that's probably my fault because Mm. I've not fed the mind enough or the heart or the soul enough. So read a book, watch a film, go and see a friend, take a walk, go and be by yourself, do something. And, you know, staring at a bit of paper, unless you're going to write a song about a bit of paper, (laughs) then that works.
0: (laughs) Yeah. What does a hit song mean to you now?
1: A hit song to me means my, well, my experience of it is a song that, really transcends you who you are your name where you're from how it mm-hmm. was made and it gets completely adopted by millions of people in a way that it is extremely meaningful to them and it's a flag in the sand of a time in their life or it's a soundtrack to a very difficult period or a very joyful period of their life um and uh, And it becomes this kind of talisman for mm. for people, and actually you've really got not- v- got very much to do with it at all. It's their yeah. own very private personal relationship with that song um and of course, many fans will know who I am, but there's definitely been times like I remember going to a party with my good friend Kevin Devine, great singer songwriter, early, early days. And we went to some girl's birthday party like on a rooftop in New York and it was so Gigi and she, she said hi and I said hi and she said, what do you do? I said, I'm a singer-songwriter. She said, oh, do, would I know your music? And I'm like, um, did you see Devil Wears Prada? And she's like, oh my God, you're on the party playlist. <laughs> <laughs> and so like my song was on her party playlist for that evening but she had no idea who sang it. And that to me is kind of what a hit is where it just, the song actually it separates from the umbilical cord and just becomes something much more kind of omnipotent. And I mean, my experience of it, it just is a ticket to ride, man. It just takes you on the most extraordinary adventures. I mean, Nobel peace prize, Yankee stadium, (laughs) like times New York, like New York times square ball drop headline that this new year, just crazy, crazy experiences. Awesome.
0: That's incredible. Yeah. Do you think hit songs feel or hit differently now than they did 30 years ago, 20, 10? You know, I mean, obviously we're in a different time and society is different and we yeah. ho- we honor different things, but I'm just curious what you think.
1: I mean, I ju- I, I just cannot give that I cannot use those things in his excuse because the songs just are not as good. They're just not as good. I, I, listen, I listen to Tom Petty, Bob Dylan, Nina Simone, Richie Havens, like, oh, I'm just, you know, Bill Withers, I'm just listening, John Martin. And I'm like, I can't hear anything today that I feel like is going to be sung in 20 years' time with the depth and meaning as Go Your Own Way or Dreams. And mm. maybe I'm totally wrong. And maybe I'm completely off the mark and I just sound like a really old person um but that's just my honest opinion I don't i i I feel like emotion and melody are just not as fashionable anymore and it's you know a lot about beats and production and uh, it, and and with the advent of reality reality pop shows vocal gymnastics have yeah. just become like an extremely important element of a hit song yeah Um, and I'm not a massive rap fan and kind of hip-hop fan so I appreciate it but I don't listen to it all the time and I think probably that's where a lot of the kind of vanguard of really exciting stuff has been being made over the last like few years sure Um, And I'm not as familiar with that stuff. So, you know, there may be amazing songs that I don't know. I'm sure there's lots of amazing songs that I don't know. I I don't listen to that much, to be honest. Um, But I do try and dip in and make sure I'm listening to new music. And there's new music I love. There's new music I love. But I'm I'm not hearing hits. And maybe that is what it is, that we can't have the same level of global hit anymore because there's just too much music. And so you're not going to get that mad concentration of global fans that create that energy ball around one song, you know? Sure.
0: It is incredible how much music there is out there. It's
1: overwhelmingly terrifying. <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's crazy because there's probably not more books or more films or more art. Real, I mean, there's probably digital art and yeah. there's probably more art being shared in that way, but like books and film, it doesn't feel like suddenly there's like an extra 50,000 books being released every day. Do you know what I mean? Yeah.
0: Um,
1: It's uh, yeah. Being able to sort of make a three and a half minute piece of work at home on a laptop has definitely changed everything. And it's not to say that that's necessarily bad. It's like, it's changing it for sure. And I think it's, it's presenting extreme challenges for people trying to make a living as a musician. But um, at the same time, I think it's great that people can just make music and get it out. It's really cool.
0: Yeah. You grew up in Scotland, right? Yeah. And not necessarily a thriving metropolis. (laughs) Is that correct?
1: 11,000 people, no train station.
0: Okay, so Uh, yeah,
1: by the by, uh, on the on the coast of the North Sea.
0: (laughs) I love that. It's interesting because a lot of people ask about, oh, should I move to New York? Should I move to LA, Nashville? So many people think the where you live has so much to do with your success, and I I I do believe that at a certain time that absolutely was true. It seems a little bit. Well, not a little bit. It seems less and less like that is true now, just because of the yeah. internet. And you can, if you have something magnetic, people will come to you. They'll find you.
1: Yeah, and I think that you know the the lockdown and pandemic, which will I'm sure will cover, is was a very interesting time for that because I started a Patreon during mm-hmm. that time because I was like, how on earth do I stay connected to fans during this time? And Patreon's great. I, if you're not familiar, anyone listening, it's, you know, you just, you, the, the artist decides what people pay per month. They decide what you get, get per month, whether it's an MP3 or live streams or whatever. Um, and it really changed my mindset about local support and local musicianship where it felt like, you know, the days of having these huge albums where you tour the world and you can afford to take a wardrobe case <laughs> with your clothes in, um, it's kind of over because there's so much saturation and demand for music. Mm-hmm. And there's not, you know, there's, it's not like people suddenly have more money or more time to go to more shows. Sure. Um, it's just more shows. Yeah. And, um, and also because of the internet it meant that you could sort of amass this really cool core fan base of people who were all over the world um the difficult thing is getting them in a room to play live so you do it online and it's not you know it's not hugely exciting to me to play into a camera um mm-hmm. and online and I, do, I i much prefer the in person experience but i i do think that if i was a new musician now i would definitely just focus on catering to a few hundred really dedicated fans who really liked what I did Mm -hmm. and look after them and then hopefully more people would come to that party but trying to compete on Spotify and Instagram and I mean it's just it's just madness like the people who are following me don't even see the stuff I'm posting it's just bonkers
0: yeah it is wild Especially with the algorithms all changing now. It's
1: just, yeah, honestly, I just did this amazing trip to Alaska. I'd always wanted to go and I was like, how am I going to get to Alaska? I don't want to go on like some awful cruise or, you know, just like go with a group of strangers and sort of stare at stuff with binoculars. Um, (laughs) And I got this magical call from an organization called Sustain Music and Nature. And they basically take a musician into the middle of a wildlife refuge on public lands and just plonk you with a couple of rangers. Mm. And you're there for five days and you write a piece of music inspired by that land. And so I went to the middle of Kodiak Wildlife Refuge a couple of weeks ago. And it it was actually about a month ago now, but it changed me. It really Mm. reset me in, I'd started becoming really frustrated, particularly with Instagram. I just wasn't able to connect a, with people I follow and wanted to see and B, with fans who are looking at stuff. And I, got, I, must, I must have spent like three hours on social media since I got back. I just can't, I'm just not mm. into it anymore. <laughs> just, I just, it's still a nice way of connecting, but I just don't want to spend my time on that anymore. I don't want to be looking at it anymore. It just feels like it's not, it's, I, I remember the days when Instagram was really pretty fun. Yeah. And it felt quite creative and it felt like you were it was just you and your mates and you were sharing stuff and it was great and it's just turned into like I just don't want to look at what it's showing me anymore.
0: Yeah, well see. I think they might turn it back around. I have hopes that they will. But yeah. in the event that they don't, I'm curious yeah. what what you think. So that, you know, over the last maybe even 10, well, 7 years, that's been kind of a, a really prime way to connect both as a consumer and as an artist to your fans, you know, like you're saying, it was fun to just go see the people I'm yeah. following, you'd see what they're doing. If without I mean, you that, have, you
1: have to, yeah, you have to assume that the reason it's changing is money—that they want to make more money. So, because why else would they do it? Why would they? Why would <laughs> be they be messing around with stuff in a way that yeah. people are not enjoying unless it's making them cash? So you look at spotify and you look at and i love bandcamp i think bandcamp's an amazing platform for music mm-hmm. and i just think it you know if i'm i'm so surprised someone hasn't come up with this but just a really good very similar platform that's got a small subscription fee yeah and you pay you know whatever like 2 2 bucks a month 3 bucks a month and that kind of stops you you know you can pay for an ad-free thing and you and there's rules and regulations that who you follow is what you see mm-hmm. and you don't get unsolicited stuff getting sent to you um i would pay for that
0: i would too i yeah. actually had that exact conversation with somebody with some bandmates of mine the other day and it was just i i think that that'll probably come that feels yeah. like that idea is in the air you're maybe the second or third person i've heard talk about it. it's like oh okay yeah
1: if instagram wants yeah if instagram wants to make more money say that you're going to charge five bucks a month. You're not going to fuck with my algorithm and you're not going to send me adverts. I would pay, man.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would too. Yeah, yeah, we had it good just seeing what our yeah, followers. Yeah, we did. Were back,
1: in the d- back in the days when Instagram was all about family.
0: <laughs> yes. Let's get back but to yeah. guitars. Yes, let's. Do you still have that guitar that's on the cover of Drastic of Fantastic? Yes, I do.
1: And it's like, it's so fragile because it's not real.
0: What, what is the deal with that guitar? What is so, it?
1: So I wanted, I, I said to the designer who was going to put it together that I wanted a mirrorball Firebird. Okay. And like to cover it in, in you know, mirror mosaic. And of course we didn't want to buy a Firebird. And so she she made one for me. But instead of kind of measuring the guitar, she just put the guitar on some like wood board and just traced outside it. Like you would like, if you trace around your hand and then yeah. your hand's enormous.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so she
1: <laughs> just made this like absolute beast of a thing and covered it in like, you know, mirror mosaic and pearl beads. And it, she actually used them um, decanter, like, stoppers for the pegs like crystal decanter oh, okay, yeah. stoppers and it's an amazing thing but yeah it's that that's been wrapped in bubble wrap in storage but it needs to get it needs to come out and be put somewhere it was very fun
0: that's awesome and wh- tell me what are your other main guitars are both on the acoustic and electric side
1: yeah so back uh in 2018 I started working with Taylor um okay. and I love them Uh, I I was just so into their environmental policy, to be be honest, like Bob Mm -hmm. Taylor's kind of uh, efforts towards making sure the wood is from a good place and he's got good ethics and policies is really impressive and their instruments are beautiful. And so they ended up uh, custom making me my acoustics, which are, um, they're called, I think, Grand Symphony. I'm terrible at remembering names, but um, big, dread really nice but yeah. big full body but a little bit smaller than the dove which is what I was playing before which was really nice it was slightly more feminine shape which I really liked and um uh yeah I've just I've always I I just fell in love with the black elvis dove so I've I've been pay- playing black lacquered acoustics for a long yeah. time now and um and I've now so so Taylor actually just did me a new guitar and I'd been I'd been duct taping a black lightning bolt onto my white scratch plate. And then their amazing luthier just, they custom put in a black lightning bolt into my scratch plate and it just looks absolutely amazing. And I actually, um the new scratch plate is based on an old Tom Petty guitar. It's kind of like a mirror image, slightly Western looking scratch plate and it's just cool. killer. So I've got to, I've got to find my, the pickup that I like using to get, to get into that guitar so that's my acoustics. And then um, electrics, I've been playing Supros for a long time. Mm. And that was another story about a, a, an album cover. It was Wax in 2018. And I had the photo shoot for the album cover on at the weekend. And I went to see Jack White at the Mayan Theatre on the Thursday. And I was watching it just going, oh my God, you know, it was a brilliant show. And then I suddenly went, oh my God, I, all my guitars are in London. And I don't have any guitars for the shoot and it's a rock and roll record and I've got to have a guitar on the cover. And so I went along to uh, see my pal David at True Tone Guitars in Santa Monica and he was just awesome. He was like, Katie, pick whatever you want. We'll put it in cases and just bring it back on Monday. And I was like, oh my God, you're a legend. That's so cool. And it was this really cool situation where it didn't matter what the guitar sounded like. It just had to look cool.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and so I saw
1: this Supro Jewel Tone hanging on the wall. It was like it's like a Bakelite plastic guitar, and I was like, "That might sound awful, but it looks so cool." Um, and then when I brought it, and then and then actually when we did the shoot, it was the first photograph. I just I just lent down holding the guitar. Piper Ferguson, the photographer, click, and we were like, "Oh man, that's the album cover!" Like literally the first wow. shot It was like the te- the test shot. And I said, well, now this guitar is on the album cover. I've got to buy the guitar. And I was like, you know, I don't know anything about it. I've not even played this guitar. So I went back to the store, gave the other ones back. And David was like, you know, it's a really good choice because Bowie used to play these. Mm. And I was like, no way. I had no idea. I plugged it in. It sounded amazing. And it was like 700 bucks. Yes. It was like a super, super value, you, you know, good value guitar. And the great thing about the Supros is they're so light, yeah. You know, and so you can play that thing for two hours and not get a bad shoulder. It's there, and so yeah, they've been. And I, I actually use their Statesman combo. Their amp is brilliant because yeah. I need an amp because I've got a line splitter. I need an amp that that can handle an acoustic and an electric at the same. You know, uh, yeah. song to song, and a lot of amps really don't like acoustic guitars. Yeah. Um, And the Statesman, the Super Statesman is fantastic. And I use their tremolo and overdrive as well. They're great pedals and really nice stuff. So it was just a really, and actually I bought the guitar and then posted the picture and then Supro just like commented. So here's where Instagram does work. They just commented going, can you please DM us? That's so awesome that you're using our guitars. And so I got a good relationship going with them.
0: I love that they have great amps. I really yeah, like their the amps.
1: amps are awesome. I, I've really, really enjoyed it. Just great sound. And the thing I like about the Statesman is that you know, if I if I'm using a kind of default amp, then it's usually like a Fender Twin, yeah. or a Fender Deluxe. And you, I'm on like number one. You know, Sure. I yeah, just yeah. can't. And and you're you've got to crank that thing up to get the most use out of it. So the good thing about the Super ones is you can crank them up a bit more, and they're not going to like kill someone in the front row.
0: Yeah. That album you're talking about Wax. Is that part of so it seems like there's a trilogy of records. Mm-hmm. Kin, Wax, and then the new one Nut.
1: Nut. Yeah, so I went full I went full prog 70s on the on the album trilogy. I um, like that. It was extremely fun. It took me 7 years. And it ended up like straddling the most profound period of my life I mean so mm. much went on that, you know I never expected the first record was about you know the soul record was written after my my dad passed and I got to I just when my dad passed I just woke up and was like oh my god my life is wrong and I'm totally married to the wrong person and I don't want to live in Britain anymore and I just sold everything I owned got divorced and moved continents and mm. that's when I wrote that first record and then the second album the body record Halfway through the tour, I completely lost my hearing in my left ear. I just woke up on the tour bus deaf.
0: You just woke up and you had no hearing.
1: Woke up. It it took about two days to die and I could just hear my ear dying. It was the weirdest thing. It It was like a Brian Eno record playing in my ear. It was like patterns, percussive stuff, like tones, really just so weird I could have written it down I wish I had I could have written down what was like I could hear in this ear but I couldn't hear anything else and then yeah two days I, I was getting tested we were kind of on the road and muddling through a couple of shows and uh, yeah I got tested and it's it's gone died
0: it's still your ears just your left yeah, ears
1: yeah totally deaf and I still have tinnitus yeah <laughs> in that ear so yeah so i'm deaf with tinnitus which is just you know almost funny um oh. but yeah so uh it's called sensorineural sudden hearing loss and um it just yeah they don't know why it happens and the other ear is great my other ear is like a 15 year old's ear it hears fantastically well but i'm now in mono And I, the, the, the hilarious thing is that you don't have locational hearing anymore. So I have no idea where anything is coming from anymore. I just hear Mm. sound. Um, But it it took about three months to recover. I lost my balance. That was the worst part, actually. I couldn't walk straight for about three months. And now the, I mean, the brain is just unbelievable, which, you know, led me onto the brain record that it just worked out. And I, I really feel like I can, play and record and sing and hear pretty much as well as I could before it's just if you're sitting on my left at a dinner party I'm definitely not hearing anything you're saying
0: yeah yeah I would never have known that you I mean just from listening to the last few records I would not have known that
1: well this this one was so not is the first record I've made with deafness okay um so the mixing was I was a bit apprehensive about the mixing process because obviously I can't hear stereo mixes anymore yeah um which I do miss I remember that being really cool (laughs) yeah um the expansiveness of it um but it was fine and you know everyone all the good producers I've spoken to are just like everything used to be mono and it all sounds great yeah uh, so if it sounds great in mono, it's only going to sound better in stereo, you know? So it's all it's all good. And um, yeah, it's probably changed my take on how I want to spend every day. I don't want to be on mm. tour all the time. Um, yeah. But I think that would probably have happened anyway, to be honest. Yeah. And then the third record, I'm just going, Jesus Christ, what is going to happen when I make a record about my brain? <laughs> like, I'm just going to lose my mind. And yeah. then the pandemic happened and the whole world went crazy. And that's when I was making this album.
0: I mean, obviously that time, everybody's experience with it was different. It was a terrible time. But for a lot of- It was, yeah. For a lot of people, it was also kind of something where, okay, I I need time away from constant travel. And I mean, that that seems to be one thing with a lot of musicians. Obviously, it's hard to talk about and say like, oh my gosh, it was so great for me. like Because- it was such a terrible time. There's so many awful things that happened. There's
1: yeah. so it was, many. It was it was collectively extremely painful and stressful. Yeah. Individually for me, it was extraordinarily valuable. Yeah. To to be able to stay at home. I did like intense Zoom therapy mm. during COVID and just sorted out a bunch of personal stuff that I've I, I just never had time to deal with. Yeah. Um, and it really helped me completely reset my foundation about what was important to me, how I want to spend my time and what I want to do with the rest of it that I've got. And I really worked out, I don't want to be touring much. Um, And the thing that was really conflicting for me was I just didn't miss playing live once. I just didn't miss it. Really? No, not once. And I was really shocked. I was really surprised and i'm looking at my watch going surely at some point i'm going to get a feeling that i actually want to go out and play again and it just didn't come i and mm-hmm. now i've got a really positive relationship with playing live i really enjoy it mm-hmm. but i think that it it rests upon not doing it that much yeah um and and the other thing i did during mus- uh lockdown i started write, writing for musical theater and that's kind of Something I'm really loving doing now is taking up a lot of my time and it's very exciting. I think, I think I felt that I'd reached something of a potential, uh, Mm. uh, certainly as a solo live performer and, um, I really needed to learn something new was what it
0: was. Sounds like there was a lot over the last few years, obviously. Yeah. It's been intense. Covered a lot of ground there. Yeah. And. You and had... and
1: and the funny thing is, I, don't, I find I don't pick my guitar up very often. Like I used to, I it was like glued to me for the mm. for the first half of my grown up life, you know. And now it's, uh, I think that personal that personal shift. of it's not who I am, it's what I do, you know. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's going to always be a fundamental part of me. But it's sort of quite a special time now when I sit with the guitar and uh, and play. It's not like a. It's not an everyday occurrence anymore.
0: Do you feel like your personal sense of identity has changed?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. It was. I mean, becoming becoming known as a singer and realizing this unbelievable dream. I mean, it's still you still pinch yourself that this is what I get to do as a job. You know, it's incredible. It's such a it's such a gift. It, It it's very difficult for that not to just become completely woven into to who you are and that, and it's great, but it can also be quite dangerous because, you know, it it's very easy for that to come first before anything else. Mm. And for you to make it really kind of more important than it actually is, you know?
0: Yeah. Is there anything that you're more grateful for? Like what, what in particular are you most grateful for? Oh, after I will tell after you after exactly, this
1: I'll tell you exactly what I'm most grateful for. I really realized how lucky I am that I can make whatever I want. I'm, I don't have it. There's no like label I have Sauron. They don't care what I make anymore. Like, they're just like, do your thing, whatever. We'll help you put it out. But yeah. the fact that I'm still making new music and I'm still pushing my own boundaries and that I can make a record. It was what was so exciting about Nut was that my fans had no idea what this record was going to sound like. Mm. All they knew was it was probably going to sound different from anything else I've done because that's what I've done every record. Yeah. And I and I just, I, I really just, and I saw, you know, how musicians really suffered through the pandemic. It was just a mm-hmm. nightmare. Yeah. And so I was able to kind of really... Take on board how lucky I am that I've had the success that I've had that gives me that security to then be able to explore and pe- keep pushing myself to make whatever I want to make. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an extraordinary
0: life. You're still on a label now, though?
1: Yeah, I think that's the last one on uh with my original record label which was virgin which was then emi which was then universal which was then whatever it is now but it's kind <laughs> of the it's the end of an era really with the end of the trilogy
0: yeah are you happy with the label I, I, i'm asking this because i've always been indie i've had conversations with labels yeah. and well, oh, i've, I've, been al- with, I've
1: yeah. always been at odds with the label it's a nightmare relationship it's just like you're making art and they're trying to sell it. It's just never going to sure. work. <laughs> it's all, and the funny thing is, too, that with Suddenly I See in Black Horse, I I kind of painted myself into quite a kind of jangly pop box. Mm. And I'm like you. I've always just felt like an indie musician. Um, and I ended up not having an indie musician career at all. Sure. So it's always felt a little bit alien, like being in this major label world. Like it's never felt particularly comfortable. Sorry, sure. that's my dog. That's not me hawking ho- hooking up <laughs> hairballs. Um but um, you know, I, I I'm not complaining. It's been it's been a great ride. Oh yeah. I'm, yeah, yeah, obviously. I, I don't have any specific plans i don't really feel in my bones what i what what i'm going to make next but i'll tell you something that is coming out that's already made is i've done uh an album of original duets with susie quattro and for those who aren't familiar with susie she's sold over 55 million records she became she's from detroit she became very famous in the uk and australia and europe but she was the first female rock and roll musician ever as a bass player. Amazing bass player. She had songs at Devil Gate Drive, Can the Can, and really great kind of 70s stomp rock. Um, yeah, cool. so we've ri- we've written a, a, an album of duets together. And um, she's on bass, I'm on guitar. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's great.
0: When is that coming out?
1: That's going to come out next spring. So really excited about that.
0: That's awesome. Are you going to do any... Light touring to support that album.
1: Yeah, we'll do some some (laughs) economical touring. And I am still touring. Like I've got a really great UK tour coming up in the spring and I'll definitely be doing a bunch of gigs around this record and kind of, you know, April, May time in the US. And I'm really excited about it because I know it's going to be, you know,
0: just that's it. So I'll make the most of it. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Well, what, what are you most excited about? Are you more excited about writing songs, recording in the studio? If it's not touring, because there's so many other aspects of, of making music. Like you, you say you're working yeah. on some musical theater. Do you like writing songs? Do you like recording, singing, playing? Like what? What just gets you going now? It's
1: just the creation. I used to always be the playing live. You know, yeah. the recording stuff in the studio was always just a vehicle to sell something at a gig. You know, sure. And it's just flipped now, where I just love making stuff. Anything. Yeah. I want to like my my new my new uh, uh, kind of hobby that I'm looking for, forward to getting into is I'm going to find like a ceramics teacher. I've always wanted to learn ceramics mm. and pottery properly so that's i just want to make stuff and yeah. i don't really mind what it is it's just the 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 act of creating stuff is just so fun and the studio now where i didn't i didn't used to like the studio at all and it's now just like an absolute wonderland where yeah. you can just make the coolest
0: stuff and and just have fun i love that yeah. i love that that keeps me excited knowing that you if cuz some people they lose the, like, I don't know, I didn't pick up my guitar in a couple of days. They get that thing, like you're saying, or, oh, I don't love playing live anymore. Sometimes then that just kind of causes everything to go down. It's, yeah,
1: exactly. Well, it's, you know, it's understandable because if that's been your passion and that's been yeah. your dream, and then that bubble gets popped, you really have to make an effort to dream something else. Yeah. I, I really realized mm. that after after like 15 years of touring, I was like, man, that that was one dream and and I actually I actually like fulfilled the dream in 2005 yeah. and I've been living in that dream for such a long time and and it's up to me to come up with the next dream. No one's gonna do it for me. It's not just gonna magically appear like what I want to do next and and do you want something next? what of course you do like there's got to be a next. otherwise yeah. you you know you're done who wants that?
0: I love that outlook.
1: And maybe, you know, maybe what is next is barefoot on a beach with a Negroni. And that's all good too. <laughs> it's like, enjoy yeah. it. You know, you, you you did what you came to do. But um, yeah, I just, I think one thing that I really learned through lockdown with my Patreon lot as well is that human beings are just such like, they're such innately creative beings. Like we love making stuff and we love creating, whether it's our imagination or things with our hands or things as a group. And I think that our 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 kind of capitalist thinking has got us in a very bad habit of thinking that it's not worth making something unless you can sell it mm. or unless it's worth money, then it's just rubbish. And And actually the thing itself isn't, as important as the act of doing it, of making it, and so that that's been something I've really kind of d- wanted to dive into. Because all my Patreon lot, we've done like collage stuff online, and they've been like decorating their rooms and stuff when we go when we go live with each other. And it just it really it really reminded me that creativity is a human force. It's not for artists. It's it's um, it's for artists because that's how they make a living. But that's not that's not what creativity is only about.
0: That's absolutely spot on. That has been my experience, and I love hearing that. That's yeah, that's where you're at with it. Where can we hear that song of yours from Alaska? Is that coming oh, out anywhere? I'm just, or is that- it's
1: going to come out. So it's it's a cool song. It's called. I'll I'll give you the scoop. It's called Century Trail the song, because we had this lecture from a bear biologist. So we saw like 30 Kodiak bears up there. Wow. The bears take the same steps in the same place over hundreds of years. So there's these trails through the refuge that are like a foot deep. And they're like the bear version of cave paintings. They're like impacting on the environment indelibly. And you can see these trails and they're called Century Trails. And so the, the song is about our our the you know, the marks that we leave uh mm. on on the land, kind of metaphorically and, and you know, physically. Um, but yeah, so I'm finishing that song and uh it's gonna hopefully be coming out in January with an amazing video of me being out
0: in Alaska. I'm excited to see that. That sounds like a really cool project. It was
1: it was uh it was a life, it was a core memory. I will say that it was just unbelievably beautiful and just an honor to be somewhere that wild and remote. It was just wonderful. I mean, I I always say, like, if I I want to write music, the two most important things above a guitar, pen, and a piece of paper is solitude and nature.
0: Mm, Yeah, that's great. Do you think that has to do with where you grew up?
1: Yeah, I think so. It was always, I always loved, I always loved feeling small. And I never understood when people say, oh God, I don't like, you know, looking at the universe. It makes me feel so small. I was like, isn't that great though? Where you just realize that, you know, your troubles are just nothing. Yeah. They don't matter. (laughs) I like, I I very much like the feeling of being overawed by spectacular nature.
0: Absolutely. I'm from the Midwest in Minnesota. Mm. So I grew Mm. up just being able to drive, 30 minutes out and you're yeah. in the middle of the this woods and of you can see the yeah. stars and yeah
1: yeah no it's it's uh it's i think the awe the awe of nature is what's very important because it keeps us humble and i think that when you know you live in city some i remember hearing i think it was actually a Joe Rogan podcast where they were talking about the stars and light pollution and how mm-hmm. the night sky was always this kind of leveler that doesn't mm-hmm. matter who you are You're in this enormous astral cosmic dance and you're a tiny speck in it. And then people couldn't see the stars anymore. So they weren't getting that kind of end of the day reset of perspective. Yeah. It was TV, you know? Yeah. Go see the stars whenever you can.
0: Yeah. That explains why you're in Topanga Canyon as well, though. It does,
1: yeah. And it was funny because I I take the dog to a dog park, which is down the bottom of the canyon. And I was talking to a dude at the dog park. I said, God, the stars were so amazing last night. He was like, what are you talking about? I've not seen the stars for 20 years. And I was like, oh, man, you're like two miles down the road and you can't see Mm. them. So take the drive, people.
0: I like that. Well, KT, thank you so much for being with us. What a pleasure. It sounds like you got a lot of great stuff coming out, a lot of stuff that's been out, and it is super great to have you on here. I'm really excited to listen to your new stuff. I've
1: so enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: I am going to follow you, and I'm going to do whatever I can yeah! to to make sure that your posts end up, if I have to pay $2 a month, I will, because I need yeah. to hear this. Yeah, this, my my, this my one
1: post every two months will get onto your feed. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much.
0: Yes, it's been a treat. Hopefully someday we'll hang and play some yeah. music in person together.
1: Would love that. I'd love that.
0: There you have it. Katie Tunstall. What a cool, charismatic person. I mean, what a great person. She's just awesome. She seems to be somebody that would be really cool to just hang out and be a friend with, but also to collaborate with like the open mindedness and the just like the experience and the talent. All of those things combined with a great, fun, warm, open personality make for a great collaborator. And I feel like she would be really dope to collab with for anybody or like be a producer for a record or something. I feel like she could get a lot out of the artist she's working with. Anyways, thanks for hanging with us today. I am super excited about this season of the podcast. There is some incredible interviews coming up as well. So if you haven't already, smash that subscribe or follow or whatever it is on whatever platform. I mean, you know the deal. You know the thing that you have to do to be reminded about when the next thing comes out. Just hit that button. It helps us and it helps you because then you'll know there's some great guests coming up and I don't want you to miss it. All right. Thanks for hanging. Peace.